Find Your Faith with the Find Your Faith podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Find Your Feet podcast and I'm obviously Honey Alston and I'm here to deliver exciting conversations that will thoroughly engage you and hopefully intellectually challenge you as we go on our pathway to trying to live a conscious life. I'm pretty excited to be back behind the microphone today because it's been a while. I've actually been um, overseas. We had two tours, one to Italy in the Italian Dolomites and then one to Albania where we actually traversed from Albania to Montenegro to Kosovo and across the famous Accursed Mountains. So yeah, two pretty extraordinary tours and um, followed by a three week long adventure to traverse the length of the Pyrenees Mountains from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean coastlines. I'm going to be delving deeper into that a little later on, but right now I really want to introduce to you a guest and welcome him back to the podcast actually. It is my first ever guest on this show, the famous Paolo D'Souza. So Paolo has come from a background in uh, NASA science and engineering and more recently has been working on a number of projects but the one that particularly caught my attention was the plight of the bees and as he named the project bees with backpacks. So this is what Paolo and I dived into a little bit in our first conversation amongst many other things and getting to know him. And um, I felt like as he's on the eve of moving to Queensland, I wanted to revisit the conversation and to see where the science has got to now. Because some of the facts that he pulled out in that first conversation really hit me. For instance, he was predicting that within five to 10 years, the price of my beloved apples could be over $100 a kilo. That's a pretty frightening rise considering that we're just over $3 a kilo now. See, in Australia at the moment, we're quite fortunate that our honeybee population is relatively stable, but there are so many threats against it, from the use of pesticides to the monoculture of our agricultural crops, to climate change and extreme weather events, to the varroa mite, which has just reached the shores of New Zealand. Colony collapse disorder, um, another word for the quick disappearance of what was once a healthy um, hive, has really been on the increase. And uh, globally, we're starting to see some pretty scary things emerging. For instance, in the US in the last year, beekeepers lost 40% of their honeybee colonies. Um, in, in just one year and in the wild European sorry in the European area the wild European bumblebees decline has been happening at a similar rate you know given that in the US the bees are um, estimated to pollinate about 15 billion US billion dollars of US crops a year you know this is a, a significant problem so Having said all of that, that is exactly why I felt like we needed to revisit this conversation and to get a better grasp from Paolo of where we're at. But we're both uh, either coming back from or on the eve of vast adventures. And Paolo, since our last conversation two years ago, has been on what has been an incredible trajectory as a runner. You know, he's gone from being really a student of the craft in its infancy, in his infancy, 
to being what I would consider somewhat of a master of the craft. You know, he went from wondering if he could run a marathon to now running 100-mile races through the mountains. And what I loved in this conversation was where we delved into the mindset, that heart, mind, body, and spirit connection uh, that you gain from running, and especially when you go into these long distances. We sort of threw ideas at one another. We shared stories and and the war stories um, before turning the conversation around and talking about the plight of the bees and all the things that we need to really be thinking about doing as we are try to help. So this is another conversation about the importance of conscious living. It's another conversation about the importance of striving and pushing ourselves beyond what we really think is capable. And it's just another bloody good conversation with a stellar guy, Paolo de Caesar. I can't wait for you to jump into this one. So enjoy the conversation. Oh, but before I do, uh, I just have to mention that, um, With gratitude, we're getting so much love on the Find Your Feet tours at the moment, and almost all of our tours for 2020 are filled. However, that said, we have a few places left on a pretty cool trip to Chamonix in the French French Alps. We have a couple of places left, I think, on the tour going to the French Pyrenees, a place that I love, my heart throb. And I think there's one place now available on our trip to Bulgaria, which is an inaugural exploratory tour of the Bulgarian mountains. There is also a couple of places left for advanced level runners to come and run through my backyard, the uh, Overland Track. It's our extreme tour, we call it, the Overland Track Extreme, where we run 63 kilometers in a day through an otherwise very inaccessible trail for runners. The only other way to do it is to race through there with very, very limited places. So if you'd like to come and have a run on any of these trips, we would love to welcome you. Jump across to www.findyourfeettours.com.au and I would recommend, if you haven't already done so, have a bit of a look at my trail running guidebook. You can find it on my website, www.hannyalston.com.au. Radio, we did it. Should we get started? Yeah, let's do it. Here's Paolo. Thank you for having me here in your office again. I can see you're packing up. Yeah, two boxes around, yeah. <laughs> that makes me really sad. So I'm actually curious. So you, I got an email from you, which was what triggered us to sit down again today. But I wasn't quite sure what the role was that you were going off to do. Yeah. So I will be head of the school of ICT with Griffith University. Uh, and of course, a professor there as well. Okay. And so information communication technology, was, is, I f- when I saw that, I wondered if that was a bit of a side, like a, a side step from where you've been. Yeah, I'm a physicist by training, and that's a very interesting starting point. So my work is about instrumentation, miniaturization, so that is where I work. And ICT has a big aspect of of. True. This research. True. So yeah. I am always around, um, but my background is in instrumentation, building instruments. It might be instruments on Mars, might be on backpacks of bees, might be on brains, whatever it is. 
whenever an instrument is needed to make measurements. Right. But you've been very, it's, well, from the friendship that we've developed over the years, it felt like you've been very project-driven in this role because you're with CSIRO, NASA yeah. a little, and then UTAS. Is that correct? You, you, yeah, that's true. You yeah, see. that's a very good very good point. Yeah, it has been most of the time driven by projects. Mm -hmm. So we have a specific problem we would like to solve and then bring resources in, uh, build a team around it and, and then deliver to that. Um, now in the new role, there will be a lot of administration uh, aspects. Of course, uh, being ahead of the school, there are so many aspects, but it is also interesting because there will be a chance to help the school to shape and raise the profile, True. which is a fantastic group of scientists and academics working okay. there. So that might be a few projects coming along that I will be involved in as well, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the one that I really, like, Paolo, I really wanted to talk about with you, because as you said, um, you'd seen the magazine that's just come out, which I was, I was in an article in this magazine, Trial Run Mag, Australia, New Zealand. And they, um, it was quite interesting because they asked me, what, what was my favourite podcast? Like, who left the most profound impact on me? And you just sprang to mind. I mean, you were my first ever guest. I think we had rubbish technology, rubbish audio. Um, but the most fascinating conversation and it it was the the project with bees with backpacks and the decline in our honeybee populations and, and bees in general like um, pollinating insects in general that really opened my eyes up to an issue that i just really had no idea was going on and the bit that resonated the most with me was that my beloved apple price might go up from what is like $3.95 a kilo in Tassie at the moment to over $100 a kilo. I think you were saying within five to 10 years. So like that project, I think you would agree has been close to your heart, hasn't yeah, it? It is, it is. Uh, oh, first of all, thank you for that mention to our conversation. It's really awesome. Uh, yeah, the, the challenges are still there. Uh, the project will not stop because I'm moving on. There will be a few colleagues at CSI taking care of it, and okay. I will be involved from there. That's no question about it. Yeah. It's an international endeavor. Uh, we're still trying to understand the decline. It's a big puzzle. But I think the underlying picture of that is the human influence. How much we have actually done to this world to which extent we are very short-sighted to a point we can't see the consequences of our acts. We want to make things and get quick gains, and this is actually not sustainable. Mm. Human race, the way we think and the, the way we act, the way we do business, the way we grew our society is not sustainable. The key thing about bees is not just the pesticides, pathogens, parasites, climate change, everything, but behind that there is one thing, it's the human being. And we are the ones driving not only the bee decline, but decline of so many other species. Mm. And we are transforming the, the face of this planet to a completely different place, which is not nice. Uh, it's, it, the challenges will be there for so many other things, not just for the bees. The bees we can see, we can rely, they are disappearing. There will be nasty consequences if they go away. Um, but it, there's so much more. Mm. And this is where we need to stop and think something is definitely wrong in the way we, we develop our, our society. Yeah. 
this is the most fundamental aspect is within us the short gains I don't care about what's coming next I don't care about my neighbor my community I don't care about my country I don't care about my generation yeah. I care about me and this egocentrism is driving the whole world to a, a, a point without return Mm. It is it is terrible. Uh, this is what we have to change. And this is a bit that, that just frightens me. I mean, we're, we're both of a relatively similar age, but in that younger age demographic is like, we want to live on this planet for a long time. You know, we want our kids to be able to live on this planet. And that, that terrifies me. Yeah. Um, I mean, people have even said, you know, why do you do a podcast? Like, you you focus on running, you train runners. Like, why do you do a podcast where you're talking suddenly about climate change? And I'm like, because I care about it. Like, I'm terrified by it. <laughs> uh, probably we are connected. If we do trail runs, we are connected in a completely different level with nature. Of course, we had our experience in childhood. You grew up in a farm, I grew up in a farm. And we have a different connection with that, with nature. But when you run, you just, if you are in the moment present, you just experience that. Yeah. It's, 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 it brings to a completely different level your connection to the, to the world. Well, it's almost primal. Like in, in many ways, you're just like any other animal, like running, running through the forest. And, and interact with them. You can see they yeah. uh, running from you, or running with you, or falling. Uh, you, it's, it's different. Um, it's 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 nice it's beautiful it, everybody should experience that yeah. for sure might be tracking might be trail running might be doing something but i like the speed so oh i love it i i feel so blessed i mean this podcast is not about me clearly um but i've just got back from three weeks or six weeks in europe two weeks running with the guests and in albania italy montenegro and kosovo it was incredible trips um but then three weeks running across the pyrenees and uh, you know trying to traverse the length from the atlantic to the mediterranean and it was it it was something that became so primal in your existence in that three weeks you literally you you slept you ate you ran you ate you ran you ate you slept and that was pretty much how every day played out but the thing that kind of i think was the most magical about it was how quiet your mind became when you're out in nature um like it was like over the course of the three weeks you almost stopped thinking like and you just entered this whole other world and i know from our previous discussions that's what you get out of running and i guess is that where a lot of your um I guess that the, the energizing you start yourself for the work that you do, does that, is that where it comes from? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people say that I run to have ideas and I run to, to, to get away from them. I, I want to quiet my mind yes. because I can't stop thinking all the time about all the issues we have to solve, all the bills we have to pay, everything we mm. have to do. And I want that moment of, of peace. And I have to stay present all the time. So I have this mantra in my head, stay, 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 be present. Because otherwise you will start wandering, my mind starts, and I have to bring it back again. It's like mindfulness in many ways, it is. 
It is like a meditation in many ways. I acknowledge that I'm thinking about tomorrow's trip that I have to pack or whatever, but I am now running here and this is yes. rock. It's, it's, it's bright. That one is darker. This, look at the, the color of this grass. Look at this smell. Uh, hear the sound of the birds and this is what you have to keep pushing yourself and you know, coming back, staying present. Uh, otherwise I will just start doing what I do in my office and this is not meditating, it will be like daydreaming yeah. but about something that I have to so be preoccupied uh, that is not running, it's not what I what I try and still learning on, on doing that but Oh, if, I uh, love that Yeah, that's really interesting because I've developed over time this mantra when I was in the Pyrenees which was calm but purposeful like there were times when, and you would get it, where you're a bit outside your comfort zone or you you start panicking about all the things that you've got to still get done that day and your head starts whirling your head or you're trying to do a little bit of a harder run and um, and you start your brain, your brain and your body start to fight it, you know, and, and, and begin to tussle one another. Yeah. And it, my mantra was like calm but purposeful and it always brought me back to the moment. So yeah. that's really interesting. So... My question then for you is like, do you practice mindfulness or meditation outside of running and bring that knowledge in with you? Or does that knowledge come from running which you bring into life? Which way around is it? Yeah, I think it both are connected. So of course I have to practice meditation outside because there are, now it's a little bit more scientific, of course, there are pathways in your brain that you develop by meditating that you can bring back and still present there. The challenge is to be present when things go south, like I am in a race, things are really hard, and I'm by no means I'm going to win a race, I will keep trying, <laughs> but it will never happen. <laughs> but it's, it, it's when it really gets hard, and you start thinking, oh, the next station is two hours away, I still have to climb this or that, I have to go down this technical stuff. This is where I want to see the mindfulness plane and say, mm. forget about it. Let's, let's, of course, you have problems to solve, but let's solve them when they come, not later on, because then you'll just miss the point of, uh, of running. Yeah. Yeah. But it has, to, it has to be you integral. It has to be you outside running, meditating, focusing on being better there, and also bring that back into your running experience. But mind can be very a very crowded space, mm. a lot of thoughts and very confusing and it's, it's important to keep it quiet. Yeah. And that's the conscious mind because as I'm finding out through my studies and, and the exploration of mind, self, spirit, emotions, our thought processes is that 80% or more of that is going on subconsciously in the unconscious mind. So what we're aware of and how full our head feels is just the conscious bit. Like the brain's actually working overtime behind the scenes. It's kind of like watching a play and thinking the actors have done everything when you've got a whole crew behind the scenes. Yeah, it's built yeah. to solve problems. Yeah. This is what your, our brains were built for. And it's that trying to solve all the problems. This is what is programmed for. Yeah. So it's really difficult to rewire your brains yeah. in a different way. Yeah, I agree. It's it's what what happens below the conscious level. It's it's interesting, and there you would have many other things. I'm no psychologist by any any account, but 
if you if you look at traumas or, or difficult times you had or any other things playing in your background that can emerge at those times it's also interesting but yeah. they are there playing and you can see sometimes the run didn't happen something was wrong and just like you said it's like you're, you're fighting with yourself Absolutely. and you get injured um, when you, you are just too tense and was not really there but because your mind was not really fully it's connected to you. so how do you fit in formal meditation do you do you like schedule time into your weeks or your days to like so the non-running stuff because i'm quite interested in this because when i wake up in the morning like i just want to be outside <laughs> I want to be moving. I feel like that's when I'm at my best. And then by the end of the day, I'm tired and my brain feels my brain feels tired. So I'm kind of curious to know how you structure that in. Or... Yeah, usually during work time, it's where you can stop, close the door and just take your time. It might be 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever you have. More than once in a day, it's even better. Um, but this is where you have mornings are not for me for me my mornings are for my family for my dogs for my house yeah. I, I prepare the breakfast for my wife every single morning and get everything ready this is not a time that i can just be aside i want to do the same I just want to go and get things done then at night it's again it's the same i, I, I cook dinner every night for my family so I, I just don't want to do that that's the time for family mm -hmm. so for me outside would be really it, i would be more productive at the end of the day so for me it's doing work yeah okay working hours yeah, yeah. i've been practicing doing it at night when i'm going to bed so like i'm in bed i've read my book i've hugged my husband you know like in said our good nights and then I, I do it then and I I've been practicing it for a long while but I really saw it play out when my body was getting so physically challenged over a three week period and the change in my ability to recover on the nights when I dedicated myself to like a 20-30 minute practice in bed compared to the nights when I was so tired that I'd just think oh, I'm rolling over and going to sleep which I would was just out of this world different so i think it really does show you like how important it is to like however you fit it in however you do it to take the time out to have yeah, this quiet it's space. a habit as well so yeah. then if you don't do it you feel something is wrong yeah i should be doing this it's like if you don't go saturday in my case my long runs on saturday if it's a saturday that i don't go out for a long run what's going on something yeah. is wrong yeah. Because it's part of your habit. But it's such yeah. a hard habit to begin, like when you first, when I first tried to do it, and I'm sure, oh, are yeah. you the same, like your head was just like wrestling with you. Yeah, like, yeah it's still, uh, it really depends on so many other things. So you have to know yourself so much. Yeah. yeah. It, you can't, you can't, you can't really do much yourself for your teams, for your family if you do not know yourself well yeah. enough so this is where you have to it's a dedication time for self-study in many yeah. ways but if you can five minutes do it five yeah. minutes make that a habit then you increase to eight maybe ten don't start with half an hour because it's going to be hard for you <laughs> it's going to be horrible <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is actually i want to come back to beats definitely yeah. 
But um, but this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to sit down with you because I don't I can't even remember when we started the podcast, but we've done a lot of episodes now, and um, you were just really beginning on your journey as a trail runner, and you're talking about you know things you need to bring things to consciousness, you need to take time to practice, you need to learn the art, and that's where I feel you've gone as a as a as a human being but as a trail runner if we want to isolate you into that world um, more recently because your current running goal is 100 miles am yeah. I right yeah. it's just like saying that scares me like blows me away <laughs> like 100 miles in the mountains um, in Alps of Australia I guess then I want to know like what do you think have been the biggest changes or the biggest lessons that you've learned since we last spoke yeah I'll well, so many things. I, I I think the starting point is is just is a disclaimer. I I am not an elite runner in any measure at all. It's not about it. So I am just a normal person that yeah. decides to run, loves running, and uh, this is where and and I put my time and my efforts in. So definitely mid of the pack. Back Should to we pack. put it in perspective? Because I know that there are a lot of Australian listeners. We've got a lot of others. Thank you. Um, but a lot of our listeners probably have heard of Ultra Trail Australia, yeah. which you did this year in May. Yeah. 100, 100 kilometers. 100 kilometers. And it was yeah. 19 and a half hours, I think. Yeah, that's like. right. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I just think it's nice to kind of, for people to get a feeling of what we're talking about. Yeah, so, so yeah, my I have done UTA the year before, was 17 and a half, if I'm not wrong. This mm-hmm. year I had a terrible sinusitis, was so hard. The trail was beautiful that day, was awesome, but I, I, I have to hold back. My heart was just rockets, you know, going so so high in the hills and I have to, to What was the that. cause of that? Yeah. Uh, I had an infection playing since oh, wow. um, uh, Buffalo Stapede. So I, I tried to do the Grand Slam. Uh, so it was 10K the first day, the 75K and the mm-hmm. second and then the marathon and the third. So I did the first day and something is not going well. And then on the second I couldn't eat at all. And I just, that was my, my only and real DNF. That mm. was when I put everything on the tray and I came absolutely on my, <laughs> my limit. So coming to the last state station was about 5K to the end, or 70 kilometers in. I was walking sideways, literally. I couldn't eat anything at all. I couldn't drink anything. Nothing was going down, absolutely. But I took my time and I went. I had yet four hours to cut off and 5k to go but I thought that was not the right thing to do it's mm. not I think it wasn't safe for me and probably very disturbed dis- disruptive to the race uh, organizers and marshals if they have to rescue me somewhere in the trails that this is it I have to stop here and that was an infection that I had in my blood there was some bacteria playing around oh, wow. um, and I, I brought that into I had all sorts of infections happening teeth, ears, and it was terrible. And, and I end up with sinusitis as well in the in UTA, and I, but I, I did it. It was a great day, so I, wow. I finished that. But yeah, it just happened. Um, but it could happen to anyone. Mm. But running, yeah, I, I did twice UTA, cervical um, century, um, I think it was in total about five, 
500k so far, twice the Yuyangs in Victoria. I did a 100 miler in the US last year, um, was the Yeti. And all that in, within four years that I put my first trail shoes and start running. Um, yeah, and this, this race in November will be the hardest one so far, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah. So, so what do you put your learning down to and your ability to progress? I mean, this, this is a question that I, I wish there was a magic wand answer, and I know there isn't, but I'm going to get your answer of how someone with your amount of commitments that you have from family and you're such so dedicated to the family it's not like you've got a wife doting on i mean she i know you have a beautiful wife but you know she's not the one cooking dinner every night you know you're still a dad you're in this huge job with so many well level problems that you're trying to help solve and you're pushing a body to go from like beginning in trail running to running 100 mile races in the mountains like i'm I'm curious to how you juggle that. And uh, it's a matter of priorities. So if I want to do it, and I, I have to put the time aside and do it. And when I decide to do something, I put my heart and my soul and everything I can into make that happen. Family is not exclusive from running. It's part of the, of the <laughs> running. My wife is going to run her first marathon in wow. Sydney in two weeks' time. <laughs> So she it, and I have I don't have to to tell anyone. She decided to start running. My daughter is running as well, and this is how things are. So it's part of the family in a way. Everything we're doing. It's a language you speak. But you have to dedicate. You have to study and look for advice. Look for this community is just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, I am very timid, so for me it's very hard to make friends, and I am always very quiet. So if I come to a party, I will be the one in the corner there, just quiet. Yeah. So when you go to a, a, a trail run, you meet people just like if you if you have seen them for 20 years. Mm -hmm. They high five, and talk to you, and joke all the time. The whole party is happening there, it's like <laughs> friends everywhere. I love that. It's it's unbelievable, and and what a beautiful community. Mm. And people that you usually just cross the street and don't, don't even say good morning. But in a trail run, they are just, just having a great time yeah. and, and, and supporting yeah. you and helping you. So for running itself, I think it's be very structured. Uh, look for advice, look for a coach. Uh, uh, there are so many other professionals. You need to have a good physiotherapist. You need to read a lot about it. Go for small races. And, and start building from there, definitely you will, you will succeed in, mm. in whatever you want. At least to finish those, those, those races and, and be part of that. It's just unbelievable. It's great. Yeah. yeah, I agree that at the beginning you definitely need to be a student of the craft and, and see it as an art form and, and tap into all those people. And I mean, you still tap into them as you gain experience and you develop your athleticism. But... But there is a point, I think, where you cross, and I felt like you crossed this between our two podcasts, where you went from being guided very, very strongly to then allowing your body to guide you and to be able to make the best decisions. And and I say that in terms of like being able to avoid injury and you've no doubt had to adapt training at different times to different challenges. And I, I guess I'm wondering how you 
do you, are you aware of crossing that line and, and how did you deal with it and have there been say um, examples of that yeah i think i think there was there was one moment when i stopped looking at numbers and i start just saying okay how i am feeling about this there are days that i run without looking at my watch I just don't want to look at that. I don't want to know what's my pace. I don't know to know. So how did um, you know you didn't want to look at that? Like, wh like why? What do you put that down to? You know. Yeah, because numbers don't don't translate necessarily what you feel. How can you measure that? Am I feeling well? Am I really with full of energy? I am tired. I am over training, mm. and those are not necessarily. It's not just the the. Resting rate of your heart beat that will tell you that it might be an indication, but it's not that. It, you have to start listening to your body, and mm. this is not where numbers come about. For you, it happens when you start, of course, running once, twice, three times, read, follow, listen to a lot of other podcasts and stories like the ones you covered really well in your podcast, read books about it. This is where you will start understanding, and it's 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 a wonderful, very complex word. Mm. I read recently, for example, that it's it's a different sport as well. So ultra running is not like a marathon running. I hate marathon running because it's like the pace you have to keep that through all the mm -hmm. way. And, uh, but if you feel something, it's hurting. You would stop. Mm. And when you start hurting, it's where the party starts in an ultra. This is where the whole thing get, you know, started. So you embrace the pain instead of running away from that. This is probably why you don't see a lot of Kenyans. They are terrific uh, marathon runners, but they will not be terrific ultra marathons runners. Probably because they listen too much to their bodies oh, to that's the point an that. Insight. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. That might be the reason. So it, it it's where you say, okay, it's hurting, it's mm. there, yeah, but I will keep going. But I have a purpose in what mm. I'm doing, so I'll keep going. Keep it really encompasses the whole human experience because I think why the numbers don't work ultimately. I mean, you have to learn structure and 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 like about the craft and so that's where numbers can be helpful at the very beginning but ultimately you realize that what we're trying to do when we're out on our trails going longer and further and wilder and deeper is that it's the culmination of the physical the mental but then also the spiritual and emotional you know and you can't measure that with numbers so yeah. is that is that your experience is yeah it is it is when and I think we mentioned that last time we spoke, you, you, you run to the point you get tired. And of course your brain is having a great time with you, say, hey, mm. you are so tired, you know where you're going to finish this. I remember my, my, my 100 miler, when I look at the watch, say, oh, jeez, I'm a marathonian, 42 kilometers. I still have 120 to go. <laughs> <laughs> I look at it and say, jeez, and the, the same happen at the end when I was 120 kilometers in and still I have a marathon to go. So this is your brain playing with you all the time yeah. and you have to quiet that saying yeah. I'm, I'm keep going until you start hurting and then you start questioning the why you run yeah. the first time. You probably lost here, what are you doing? 
and you have to dig deeper and why you run and then you, when you touch that it becomes really emotional yeah. you have that emotion that the best figure that i can have is like a, a crystal ball on your hand and you can do whatever you want with that you can cry like a baby you can laugh like if you have heard a beautiful joke and it's just fantastic or you can just keep it quiet but it's there you can tap on that anytime mm-hmm. and this is a completely different level now it, that could be uh, I don't know it could be even spiritual but it's yeah. there and you can't experience that by just running a marathon on the road no. and this is where you you, you, you experience something completely different and I think you have to break your physique, you have to break your mind and mm. deep into your emotions to say, hey, this is me. This true? is why I'm running. This is, this is my connection with my world. This is my connection with my grandfather, with my father, with my mom, with my family. Yeah. This, is, this is me. That, that is like the biggest light bulb moment for me. I'm just sitting here and I, I don't even have pen in front of me, but like... It's almost like in these challenges, whether it's a hundred mile in one go, or for me it was like 700k in 19 days through the mountains, it's like you start off and no matter how like experienced you are, you, you're in it physically, you know, you're day one and you've got your shoes on and you take off and you feel the running and you feel the physical and then the physical fatigues and then it becomes mental and you're like, your mind starts playing with you like oh my god you've already done 120k and you're only on day three and how are you going to be able to keep this going and you know and and i better eat some more and it becomes very practically mentally and then you go through the other side of that and it becomes very emotional and you're like oh i don't know if i can do this like and then you have this highlight joy and then you get thrown into fear and then suddenly you're anxious and then you come out the other side of that and there's like this like quiet wind tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, you, and your body's going quiet, you don't feel anything anymore. You, you it's know. like, I don't know if that is flow. What is that? Yeah, I experienced that. So it's just like, where's the pain? It's gone. Yeah. Where is the... I'm not tired anymore. Yeah. I'm just going and going and yeah. going. It looks like a tunnel. And it's a deep connection with with the trails where you are you just don't feel I'm going up a hill like flying I'm going downhill like crazy what what's that it's something completely different and and there is no thoughts there is no it's just you present <laughs> so what yeah. hap- what did you experience so I don't want to put words in your mouth what did you experience when you reached the finish of your first hundred miler in America then yeah I think I had again that that emotion on on the hands. Of course, the last mile it's it's hard. It's it's it, you know that you get it. So I I've done it. I, I finished that. It's coming. There's no way that this is not going to happen. So there's no doubts about it. That that point for me, and I run because it brings me back to who I am, particularly close to my grandfather and my. My father, mm. my my mom, that passed away, but they become like present. They are there with me. So if I imagine them at the end of the of the finish line, mm. cheering, this is something that can I can only experience by being at the mile ninety nine of a hundred miles to go and to finish. But once it's finished, it's it's like it's done. 
what else? Uh, should I go back again and running <laughs> with this big, uh, empty? Yeah. yeah. So you feel like, what's what's going on now? Yeah. What's next? Well, I'll probably take a couple of photos, send to the family, tell them it's, everything is fine, I've survived. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's some, it's not a sense of accomplishment. At the end of the day, you did not accomplish anything, but just to, to get you back experience. to who you are. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and then you have to stop. And what happens in the days following? It's really when you stop and think, what, what was the positive thing? What didn't work well and why? You can be very practical about the blisters that came here because I didn't tape it properly. It could be that chafing that I should have paid more attention. It should be a different type of, of food that I should have had. It was too sweet and I was a bit sick of that sweetness. But apart from the practical side, and what was really the experience of, of running that? Yeah. And would you go back? Uh, probably, it's not the right question to ask immediately after, but the answer is no question, is yes, of mm. course, I have to. Absolutely. I have to experience that again, yeah. and again, and it again. It is, it's yeah. so addictive. Yeah. For me, I just got this deep state of peace, but also confusion. Like, I kept thinking, I feel, I feel like I should be crying, but I don't need to cry. And I feel like I should be really excited, but I don't feel excited. And I feel like I should be happy, but I don't don't necessarily feel, I feel happy, but I, I don't need to express happiness. And I, I feel like I need to show gratitude, but I don't know how to show gratitude. In it. Like it was just like this, it was just like, um, I don't know, like so at peace after all the time of being on the track that I just didn't know what to to, to do, to feel, and it wasn't, like you said, till days later that it began to play out, and, and how that played out for me was I got really dizzy, I got really giddy, it was like my physically I felt fine, and emotionally I felt fine, but I just felt really giddy, and it was like you're coming out of the vortex or something. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, because yeah. what matters is the journey, it's not, yeah. it's not the finish, it's not getting there, it's about the journey, Yeah. and uh, then it, it stopped there, you don't have to keep going, it, it's, it's gone. Yeah. But you don't. You should not do anything, but just say, okay, what an experience that I yeah. had. Wow, that's great. I have to think a little bit more about it. And let me take care of myself now. I have to recover, and then I focus on the recovery immediately after. And But then after that, I have to, of course, think about that and yeah. what was the good point and bad point, what I didn't like, what were the risks and other things. But yeah, you have that feeling of what? What, that that was it. Uh, it's done. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you know all that, then just before we go to bees, but if you know all that and you've you've really like been able to experience nutrition, and I mean you're still and we all do. We tweak and we you know adapt and grow and learn and read. But like, do you have a training planner anymore, or do you are you at that point where you can? go with the flow using all your experience to draw from yeah in terms of training I have a coach so that is he, he's lay out the plans for me and it's working well we have a good connection it's very important to have that mm, uh, it takes me a lot of my concerns about should I structure that well and I know exactly what's coming so I sent him a message he, I, I finished a, uh, just two weeks ago the Yu Yangs mm. three weeks ago and now I'm, I'm building up again for, for the next race. 
And I know that now comes the hills, and I know this is all about running form, and what we we trying to to do. And I, I just sent a message say, hey, now we have the hills back. I would prefer the bills. <laughs> it's so hard. And yeah, but that was the joke because we know each other really well at this point mm. in terms of what what is in planning there. Now the, uh, the one thing that I have learned is of course nutrition, hydration, super important. You can't finish, and I can tell that because I haven't finished once because of nutrition. I couldn't eat at all, so you can't, you can't do it. So you need to nail that. Mm. And training is good for you to to train, but you train for what's the long run, six hours, four mm. hours, six, maybe, maybe if you have a very long day, eight, you will never train for 24 hours. So it's it's after 12 hours is where the whole thing starts getting really uh, different and nothing training will you get you there. So you need to... Yeah, that's where that toolkit of nutrition and what has almost become like subconsciously going through the motions of it but but that's when that mindfulness meditation that we were talking about earlier and practicing that practicing it for life um you draw on that and consciously begin to turn down the brain and quiet the minds and quiet the body when you're out on that trail because at 14 16 19 hours in that's yeah yeah i i still don't have a question that i ask myself all the time about about how crazy is this sport of, of ultra endurance running? So it's it's too much. It could be. It's not one. It was so funny. If somebody asked, oh, a friend of mine asked me, hey, uh, are you going to bring some clothes for wet? I said, well, I don't know. Maybe day one will be wet. Maybe day two will we will have some rain, will be dry in the first day, will be wet on the second day, but that's the same race. So it's it's a completely different thing you're doing. So but it it takes you to a different place. And mm. I am a different person because I run. Mm. And I would never know myself that well. Does or that would frighten even, you though? Like does it frighten mm. you to think what happens if I can't keep doing this you know what happens if my body doesn't yeah. like me like I, that's me <laughs> yeah if i can't yeah there are so many stories of runners that have accidents and lost one of the legs and things like that and that's you know you you if i can't run anymore i don't know what i'm going to do to be honest uh, maybe i will try to swim maybe i will try to ride um, i don't know but i have to do something physically intense mm -hmm. Uh, for long periods of time. Uh, running is my favorite thing, but I don't know for how long I can keep doing that. I guess that's but all the more reason to make sure that we're doing it in ways that are, are kind to our bodies and kind to our minds and emotions and families and <laughs> workplaces and and trying to make it sustainable so it is something we're doing when we're growing old. Yeah, you... Yeah, what, what I mean is probably... It makes me feel very vulnerable uh, running. Mm. Um, so I, I learn how to be vulnerable as well. So you come to an aid station late in the night and somebody look at you, what, how miserable you might be looking at. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, if he's asking this question, it's because I am not visibly okay. 
so be, being that vulnerable at times, but also being very kind to yourself, it's very important. Mm. Um, don't hammer yourself, don't hurt yourself, uh, don't, don't go there, because it's not about it. It's about an experience, it's about doing an interesting thing, it's about learning more about yourself. But don't overdo because it's it's not going to be sustainable as well. Yeah. Oh, I could talk about this all day, but I know mm. that you're um, a busy person about to move lives to <laughs> Queensland. So I really do wanna I wanna see where we're at with what we know about our bees. Tasmania had a really rough summer. I know you know that. Mm -hmm. um, but for maybe for our listeners. We have, were affected by incredibly hot weather for a very long period of time. I was looking at the rainfall data for Tasmania and I think we're like 200 mils less than we had this time last year. So summer was exceedingly dry. And then we were affected by massive wildfires that ripped through quite a lot of uh, leatherwood plantations. Um, so I was reading today that the yield of the beautiful leatherwood honey that's got this beautiful rich creamy texture that we all love here a bit like manuka honey from new zealand was 90 percent less the yields this year than they were a year ago um, i mean that's huge 90 percent um i was also reading in that in america the u.s beekeepers have lost 40 percent of their honey bee colonies um, and they believe that the wild European bumblebee decline is the same in a similar rate. And that's despite, I guess, all the stuff that we're doing <laughs> and you're doing. So I'm curious to know, like, am I, am I wrong to feel scared or is it, what, if, what do we learn? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay to be scared and it's absolutely all the data shows that, um, but we need to be hopeful in a way. So it's not just the apocalypse in a way. Uh, we have to keep hope. Uh, that is a very important part. But we need to do something. So research is part of that. We still need to understand better mm -hmm. what are the drivers. Um, when we talk about honeybees, honeybees are the ones that we can domesticate, they are in large numbers, but there are so many other pollinators out there that are also being influenced. Mm -hmm. It's not about just food production, but also it's about the health of an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So the ecosystem, it's imbalanced. And that imbalance, not only because of honeybees, but because of all the other pollinators that we understand are going through the same decline worldwide, are really putting the environment uh, at risk. And the drivers, or let's say the major drivers for that, will depend from region to region. Okay. We see vulnerably uh, increasing in Tasmania because of, for example, uh, dry seasons and then you have a lot of fuel fire comes through and decimate the plants or decimate the pollinators and you have that imbalance in other regions where you have like in Europe would be the intensive use of pesticides the band trying to to see if the pollinators will come back and they are not coming back. Oh, wow. So it is a lot of threats going into different regions because of, of different drivers. Yeah. Uh, some, some places you have pathogens like affecting the, bees like the varroa mite the varroa and other mite, things. Yeah. Yeah. 
and they, they are really nasty. Uh, when they come, they can decimate the pollinators, the workforce of our agriculture. Uh, but the, the honeybees, because you have hives with 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 individuals that, that you can just move the entire house to another place, the hive, and they can keep working there. They come back to the hive and you take that and move to another place and they keep, keep pollinating farms for you. So mm. you can rent a hive and this is what farmers do. Uh, but other pollinators are not in that number mm. that would justify and mm. this is where you have a decline of them. Uh, in practical terms, we, we need to look at more holistic way. Uh, for everything you can do, you look at the plants in your region that are from your region, that are plants that bees like, pollinators like, have a small garden, help them. This is, if everybody do a little bit, there will, this will be a, a game change, will make a big difference. Mm, okay. uh, very practical thing. Um, be more conscious of things you buy. If you can buy local, preventing a lot of transport, a lot of costs involved, and of course, emission of greenhouse gases, they are very important. Um, and probably climate change will be one of the major challenges mm. because they will drive extreme weather events. Uh, might be heat waves, could be those storms in summer in Queensland, for example, mm. will become more and more intense. And bees will suffer so much. Even the heat waves um, affecting not only normal pollinators like insects, but also bats dying because of the heat waves. Mm. So you need to really, we have to do something about it. And, but this requires a, a change in so many things in, in, in our economy. That is not an easy uh, path. It's huge. Um, I was reading about Slovenia, where it's like honey and beekeeping is part of their national culture, yeah. and and how we really all need to kind of follow their suit. So um, the government is really backing the beekeeping in Slovenia. So if they have a bad year, they throw money into helping beekeepers to you know, get their hives alive. If they find one that is infected by a parasite, then they reimburse them and they get rid of that hive and put in a new hive. And um, they've banned a lot of the toxic chemicals in agriculture. Um, everyone has bees and gardens. Like I was reading, it was, it was, I mean, I couldn't read about all of it, but it was so incredible, the diversity of what they're doing there. Yeah, and uh, of course, that's the case in Tasmania. So the government here helped the beekeepers, uh, the beekeepers in Tasmania, to cope with that decline of the production of the yield of the of the leatherwood. Um, that that's one way. Uh, having a new generation of beekeepers, most of the beekeepers are uh, the guys that are over, let's say, sixty or maybe close to seventy years old, and they have a new generation of beekeepers. Because that connects you a lot with kids. Mm. We, were, we were working with with Victoria government on a project with the Tech in Schools program. Oh, I saw that. Bringing yeah. data to students to understand that they are analyzing the data and they come with such an interesting insights about what the bees are doing, what's happening in the environment. So they know the importance of, of the bees in their ecosystem. Um, it, it is very important that we keep educating, keep talking about mm. this. Uh, we might not be 
the ones to solve the problem, but we might be the ones that relay the message to others and multiply that. It is not just a single person that will solve this problem. It has to be a network. Our project, Bees with Backpacks, is about it. Mm. Bringing scientists worldwide to share the data they have. Change the way science is being conducted. Mm. Instead of competing for small discoveries, it's about collaboration for real advancement of the knowledge. The scientists are just doing the wrong things. We are just looking at, this is my experiment, this is my data, I have to publish first. And after I publish, then I'll, you know, I will share the, some information about yeah. my interpretation, but never will share the data. So we have to break that. Uh, and this is what this project is about. We developed such an interesting tool. Everybody wants to use, fine, but you're going to share your data with your friends as you're going to have access to the data from everyone yeah. else. And this is where you start seeing collaborations that are very unlikely to happen and start emerging. Yeah, I noticed that on the on the website, you know, you had people from all over Australia, uh, New Zealand, Brazil, Kenya. Yep, Australia, United Emirates, across Europe, yeah. U US, Mexico. Yeah, yeah, Mexico. Yeah. Sharing the data. Um, wow. And this is where they start sharing the data, they start seeing, ah, the way you conducted this experiment is different and I think you're doing the right thing. I should improve the quality of my mm -hmm. experiments. And then they start looking at the best practices in experimental design, but also they start sharing the data, publishing together, and the quality of the work is just in another level. And so then how are we bridging the gap between the science and the research and the discoveries you're making and I guess the changes that need to happen like we can there's obviously then change that happens on all different scales from the individual to the beekeepers to the businesses to the agriculture to the government you know like and everyone in between but like is there a strategy at play at the moment to like help bridge those gaps and, and create education and policy change? Yeah, education definitely is part of it. Uh, definitely it's part of it. Uh, but it is a very naive approach if I think that we can just solve the problem to just to blame pesticides. If pesticides is, are the problem, or the only problem, or the major problem, we need to work with the agrochemical industries mm support them to develop better products if those products are really needed and this is it might bring conflicts of interest on on this network so you need to really map out how this is going to play out just identifying the problem is not enough it's the most mm. important point you know what the problem is but then to develop the solutions for that problem would require leadership Mm. And that leadership is the one that will stand out to say, look, we have conflicting interests here and we need to clear them and work together, government, industry, communities, to solve this problem. It cannot just be the scientists saying this is a problem. Mm. It has to be a, a solution that brings all the players together. And you need to have that leadership in place to make that happen. Uh, in and and do, do we? Like, and I want to naively ask, like, who's driving that? Like, from a practical level? Or is that the next step of where we're going? It, it has to, you have to identify opportunities and, and empower 
scientists, if you have in Argentina a problem with beekeeping, then you have a local community that is able to to exercise that leadership. You need to empower them and to encourage them to step up. I can't go there and do that. Yeah. Uh, we can do that in Brazil. You have to have local ones. I can't do that in the U.S. or in Mexico or in Kenya. Yeah. So you need to have local leaders that will step up. And, and you know what, you're right. Because I was, um, I was reading all these amazing articles and getting excited and overwhelmed and whether to laugh or cry. Or, you know, I didn't know what to feel reading it all. But one of them had like um, the hashtags, hashtag save the bees. And a lot of people have been using it. And there was one that was hashtag save the bees Australia. So I, I got on this and I was on social media looking at it. And there was this example this year of the Mornington Peninsula. Did you see this? And the council wanted to spray all the roadsides with some pesticide. And the locals found out about it and they petitioned so hard because of their concern around pollinators and insects that it... It, they reversed the decision eventually and none of the spraying occurred. So yeah. it was like coming from a groundswell of leadership. Yeah, and good for the council that stepped back and said, hey, actually we were, we were wrong. There might be a better way of doing that. Yeah. So it's for both, for that community. Yeah. It's thumbs up for them because they did yeah. something great. Yeah. And this consultation, listening, yeah. adapting, it's a sustainable way for us to move on. Yeah. A decision that is made top down and probably would be an easy way just to go and spray chemicals in, in the roadside would be cheaper, would be easier, but would be terrible for the ecosystem. Yeah. So there are other values in place. Uh, and this, you, 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 if you look back into uh, the Aboriginal community, uh, Torres Strait Islands, the first national, uh, they are really, they have so deep knowledge about this land and they need to be brought into that discussion yeah. because they understand better than anybody else. Yeah. They took, they look after this land much before the Europeans came in and they can contribute a lot and they should. And we need to enable that to happen. We need to invite them. That's really interesting because one of my next guests on the podcast, we're trying to just jump through the red tape, is, is someone exactly on that topic. Exactly. That's because awesome. yeah. I completely agree. You know, yeah. And this is sustainability in a different way. Yeah. It's not just about economic development or social development and environment, but also in the spiritual yeah. way. It, this is respecting my culture. Do I have scientific integrity in what I do? Yeah. Do I have cultural integrity in what I do? Mm. That is where we start looking. Am I respecting the land where I'm standing? Am I respecting the ecosystem where I'm, I'm going in to run my experiments or conduct my activities? If you want to be really uh, have integrity in what you do, you start you start to have you have to start thinking rethinking your framework. Because I started using the phrase a lot, just it started rolling out of my mouth a lot, and Graham was like, what do you mean? And I, the phrase was, we all need to live a conscious life. Graham's like, what do you mean by living a conscious life? I don't, I don't get it. And um, I said, well, like, I guess it is just conscious. Like, rather than just rolling around the supermarket and grabbing things you always grab, it's stopping for a moment and thinking, is there a better choice in this moment? Or like, 
you know, going to get a coffee, is there a better choice in this moment of like takeaway versus having it in or the keep cup or, you know, the way we recycle our plastic bags and the food we buy, whether it's organic or unorganic, non-organic and, you know, rather than just looking at the price and thinking that one's cheaper, it's like, is there a better decision? What's the conscious choice here? It's like what we were talking about with running, you know, moving away from just grinding through the numbers to like thinking more consciously around the decisions we're making and, and yeah, I couldn't put a word on it, but it just kept coming back to just, just trying to be more conscious, living a conscious life. Yeah, it's it's perfect. But of course, it, you, it, once you explain, it makes absolutely sense. Uh, you have to make those choices. And this is about this integrity in what you do. Am I harming or am I doing something good or being at least neutral? Mm. Uh, am I asking permission to go and run experiments in a land where we have... Uh, Aboriginal mm. traditional owners of the land. Am I asking them to be part of it, to be not just contribute, give me some insight, no, be part of this. Mm. It's, it's, it's unbelievable when you see the, you know, local going, I would say, for example, Indians in the Brazilian Amazon going and tagging bees, putting those backpacks on bees and talking to you about what they do, which kind of plants they see them. But they are part of the research experiment. They should mm -hmm. be co-authors of the scientific papers you publish because they contribute to that and they should be acknowledged, acknowledged for that. Mm -hmm. That level of connection to the land and to the ocean and to the sky, it's something we lost in a way and we should reconnect to that. I think a, a lot of our problems would be solved just by reconnecting. Mm -hmm. Uh, in another level, for our own sake, for our own benefit. And do you feel that the groundswell is happening? I think last time you you had fears that it was kind of like we were holding a ticking time bomb to some degree. And, you know, you were very hopeful, but you were pretty much saying, like, we have to get the message out there, we have to educate people. Because, I, like, I was doing all this reading and I was like, wow, even David Attenborough got behind this. and he'd been quoted from social media as like if we lost bees we'd only have four years for human survival and he was talking about its importance in the food which we were talking about earlier food security and it turned out it was actually a fake post that someone had had put up on his behalf but as everyone be, were claiming like it was a good thing because it, it's got down to that level that people would want to hack in and want to get the message out there strongly. And fake news is news, <laughs> is still news. It went global and viral. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's a reality of market. I remember when we spoke, we, we spoke about the prices of bananas in Tasmania that went bananas yeah. because of Yazi. So what drives price is availability. If you have that easily available in large quantity, it's going to be very cheap. If it's not there, it's going to be more expensive. Inflation on products we take from granted is the first thing we're going to feel okay. when it happens. So you're going to see prices going up. It might be the price of the leatherwood honey already going up because of the bee decline. Mm. It might be the prices of apples if we don't have bees to pollinate the next season. So the next season is coming. If we don't have enough bees to pollinate, just be sure. Otherwise, the farming will not be sustainable. 
they need to transfer the costs to you. You will pay for that. Unless you can't. If you can't pay, then the farmers will close because there is no market for them. It is a reality. Uh, it is going to happen okay. unless we change this course. Uh, it's a huge iceberg in front of us and we are full power going towards that. Everybody, hey, look at that iceberg. It's there, it's there, it's, it's going to hit that. It's going to hit hard. If we have varroa in Australia, mm. ooh, this is going to hurt us so much. A beekeeping will not be sustainable. So if it's not sustainable, then you don't have bees to pollinate crops. That's it. Then you don't have produce. The one you can have is going to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be like the, 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 the you know, the portal of a, a messenger of a, a bad message, but this is this is the reality. But this is what drives us. Yeah, but but if we don't understand the iceberg that we're looking at and the ship we're sailing on and the collision path it's on, I do, like people don't change. Like people change when they feel pain, but we. We need to kind of try and alter the course, like you say now. And yeah, I feel really strongly about it. I was interested that to see that, um, according to the ABC and a, a report that was done, and they, they had a 7:30 report as well that Australia's European honeybee population is estimated estimated to be the biggest that it's been in the last 10 years. So you 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 were saying like. If this varroa mite comes, you know, you've got over 21,000 beekeepers that could be affected by this. Yeah. Is, this, is there a, like I know um, globally at the moment there's also concern about plant species dying out and there are seed banks being formed around the world to protect seeds. Is it the same in the bee situation and the pollinator situation that we're like creating like a safe harbour for bees, I know they've got to eat things and then that makes it really hard but I'm, I'm kind of curious, is there like a, a worst case scenario planning going on behind the scenes or? Yeah, I, I, no I don't think so, what, what we might have is this functional uh, extinction, so when the species are there but they don't play any role anymore in the ecosystem, okay. they, are not, they are not in numbers, they're out there to make any difference. Right. Uh, so what happens in that case, the whole ecosystem will adapt. Uh, plants will disappear or the plants will come. Those plants might not be the ones we would like to have around, but in a way nature doesn't even play with that. They don't care about us in a way. Nature will find its own way to continue, but might continue in a way that is not sustainable for us. Uh, if you look at numbers around when the varroa arrived in New Zealand, it was a big hit in this. The, still, we have beekeeping in New Zealand, very yeah. active. But it's it's on a completely different level. It's very expensive. You have to be in a completely different level in terms of productivity for you to be sustainable in your business. So the, the bottom line of, of costs will just rise. Mm -hmm. And if you are not really prepared to, to work, to, to build that gap, you will not be sustainable, so you have to close. And this will bring consequences for, for the whole uh, economic activity of beekeeping and farming and etc. Mm. So so far the, the bees in, in Australia are relatively healthy uh, but Varroa is one 
big threat. Mm. So whenever somebody comes with bee products in Australia and they have to fill that little form and the dogs are sniffing around, they are really the the gods that are preserving our ecosystem. Mm. It's so important to comply with those. So biosecurity is extremely important for, for this for this country. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, and I get I'm going around in a lot of circles, but I'm aware of the time. But um, the other one I just really no, there's two ones I really wanted to to check in on with you. One was about diet quality of bees and the the massive challenge we've got now with the trend towards big monoculture agriculture. You know, so and also changing in crop. So, for instance, soy becoming so popular, which is less less lovely and tasty to the bees as opposed to all the like lucerne paddocks that used to be in the same area and stuff. And I, I was wondering, do you believe that that is part of the bee decline problem now? Yeah, it's one of one of the the known reasons uh, we have papers uh, referring to those problems. Uh, problems are usually the, the diet. It's one of those. Um, the diversity of pollen. It's like you eating bread every day, the same type of bread. You don't want it. You go to a farm, you see an apple farm just booming in flowers and bees are there and they are flying over the trees and going to small dandelions around yes, because yeah. they want the diversity of pollen. <laughs> they are desperate for that, so they need Stops. it. I love apples. Yeah. I could eat apples forever, but yeah, yeah. They can affect yeah. almond yeah. is the same. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm vegan today because of my runs, it helps me to recover quicker, but mm. I am conscious that, of course, I have almond as part of my diet, but almond needs bees to pollinate, and mm. sometimes they use bees to an extent that is not sustainable and not mm. good for the bees. And because of the same aspect, it's the monoculture, the transport of the bees and the stress it comes with and all that, uh, it's affecting as well. Um, but intensification is part of what we do, the production in mass, mm. uh, instead of looking at different ways that we can ac actually have a more healthy uh, yeah. production and sustainable. Yeah. It might not be sustainable for the business just to keep doing the same way. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Your, your point is really good. Think about how can I improve what I do? How can this be better for all parts involved for the bees. Can I do something that can be better for the bees? Then do it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a farmer or. And when yeah. I get overwhelmed by it, because that's my personality. Like I'm a type A. Everything I want to do, I want to do perfectly, which can lead to burnout if you're really not careful. And and so I lean on what I've learned in running, which is um, my five percent rule. <laughs> so rather than thinking I've got to do it right. Oh, you're doing it wrong. It's like saying, is there a five percent better choice I can make here to begin with? Because if you do five percent here, you know, with your organic produce, and five percent there by recycling the plastic, and five percent here, and five, it adds up, and you realise that um, you are beginning to make quite a significant difference. And then you feel like five percent is not enough, so you do five percent more, and it just it snowballs and. And then I look around and I realize that, you know, now my mom is suddenly eating more plant-based and, and, you know, my brother's like working in sustainable technology for climate change research and, and you know, the whole work team have got behind plastic recycling and I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, I think it does, you always feel like you can't, you can't do enough because it's just me, but then you, you actually can. Of course, we are not alone in that, and this is what your friend told you once, 
don't worry about this. Somebody out there is going to do something about it. Um, it, it there are so many examples. But one thing that you do, for example, podcast, it's a beautiful way. We could have this conversation in a cafe just between us. But because it's a podcast, you know, a lot of people will, will share that conversation and probably yeah. share with others and think about it. Uh, we can do better. And, and this is the fundamental aspect. And I think if we just give the extra mile in terms of let's, let's do just better, uh, we, we might be able to evolve. Research-wise, we have evolved a lot, we have learned a lot of things, um, but still fragmented pieces of a big puzzle. And putting that puzzle together is actually the table where you put those, those pieces of the puzzle is the human nature. And this is the fundamental aspect on how we do uh, our activities, how we develop our businesses. We have to change that. And, uh, and this will be one problem, but there will be so many other problems around that we need to get an address. Yeah. Oh my gosh. See, and that is why I love you. That <laughs> is why I love chatting with you and why I come away feeling so, I don't know, at cause, you know, conscious living. Just say so thank you so much. And we wish you all the best with the transition. Into Queensland yeah. to running your next hundred miles through the mountains. I'm like I'm actually feeling jealous now. I never thought I'd say that about running hundred miles, but that conversation we just had was just super powerful and super close to my heart and my home. So thank you. Um, and yeah, we're, I will put lots of links up to the bees. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks.